Ignore the fact about what I went through in 2020. Everyone wants to ignore that, but 99.9% .9 of them would not have been able to perform at any level. They wouldn't have been able to come out of their house and be comfortable with what I went through in 2020. You know, I've got no more grandparents left. Like, no more grandparents. Um, like, that's, that's not something that's easy to deal with, you know. I've got no dad left, you know. My, my, my dad's gone, and all this happened in a short space of time. And then I had a break, I had the Spellman fight. You know, I'm trying to, okay, I've got a victory, you know, I'm getting a bit happy, but I'm still thinking about the negatives. And then, boom, another family member goes. And then, bro, fight week of the last fight against Lyndon, no one knows what I was battling. So my head was not there in that fight. You could see me going back to the wrong corner. You know, my head was all over the place. What's good, everybody? And welcome back to the number one podcast of the sport where Frank Warren will rather sing happy birthday to you than comp you some tickets. Um, cringeworthy, yes, but useful in this kind of cold war between Fury and Dillian White. Yeah, yeah, useful shot, quite amusing. And it sets everything up beautifully for next week. But let's cross that bridge when we get to it. A lot's happened this weekend, so I'm just going to touch on some of the talking points. I'm aware that I've got a midnight deadline, and I don't think I'm going to hit it in terms of getting Monday Mass out. But, guys, here we go. Pray for me. So I want to start with Triple G, Gennady Gennadyevich Golovkin, because he's a strange breed. And the majority of people who support Golovkin seem to be a very strange breed. They remind me of the people who, during the pandemic, during the lockdown especially, were of the view that the government wouldn't do anything that would harm the people. Therefore, if you had to stay two meters away from each other, it was because this was the right thing to do and it was backed by science. And these are the same people who were mysteriously very quiet when the pictures came out of Boris and his mates partying, essentially partying is shagging around to a greater or lesser extent, right? Ministers had to resign because they were having affairs. Um, the guy that did the statistical model had to resign for having an affair as well. It was an absolute mess. And what it turned out was these people just love to believe stuff. They love to believe things from authority figures. They love to just believe. They don't think for themselves. They just love to believe. And that's where most Golovkin fans are right now. There's been this orthodoxy that Gennady Golovkin is a Hall of Famer. And you look at that and you go, but based on what exactly? It can't be based on the fact that at 40 years old, you beat Ryota Murata. It can't be that you beat him. The same guy that lost to Rob Brandt, who seemed to be made of papier-mâché. The same guy who lost to Hassan and Dam Gcam. The guy that went to the Olympics and got slapped up. You're like, you're losing to those guys and a win over you makes someone Hall of Fame? And here's the thing. Let me establish my position. I really like Gennady Golovkin, right? I love the fact that he conducts himself like a gentleman in all ways. And I also love the fact that he can break that cover when he needs to. When someone really offends him, he'll let him know. And I love the fact that in the ring, he's, he's a monster. These are things I love about Golovkin. And I can watch Golovkin fights all day. And I'll watch fights and I will hope for him to win. But here's the thing that people don't understand. When you look at people who are great and will not get in the Hall of Fame, 
Jermaine Taylor. Think about this. Jermaine Taylor will not get in the Hall of Fame. But Jermaine Taylor has two wins over Bernard Hopkins. And had his stamina not run out, would have had an easy win over Carl Froch. Right? And, I'm not, and he's not getting in the Hall of Fame. Nor would I make a case for him to ever be in the Hall of Fame. Golovkin doesn't have anything of that caliber. When you look at someone like B-Hop, who, who's a first ballot in the Hall of Fame, and you have names like Trinidad, and you have names like Joppy, and people can say these aren't greats. Trinidad is, without question. Joppy's up there because I think Joppy is at a level that you don't get nowadays. And you can go through B-Hop's record, and there are people there that he beat, like when Kelly Pavlik was meant to be a killer. He, he neutralized him, and that's why he gets in the Hall of Fame. Now, Golovkin, we can't let him in the Hall of Fame for beating a Daniel Gill that Darren Barker beat with no hips. We can't be letting Golovkin in the Hall of Fame for beating a Matthew Macklin who couldn't beat Sturm, who couldn't beat Martina. You know, we can't be letting him in for that. We can't be letting him in for beating Dominic Wade. We can't be... We can't be letting Golovkin in for beating the soul out of Curtis Stevens. These just aren't names that are mind-blowing. And I'm going to defend Triple G. I'm going to say, in Triple G's peak years, there was nothing out there for him at middleweight. There was nothing. Right? That part is not his fault. I don't doubt for a second he would have taken on anyone who was there. There just weren't any bodies at middleweight. There weren't. In his peak years, right? Who 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 were who were the guys in the top ten? No, I'm gonna say his peak years of 2013 to 2014, right? Just in terms of physical peak. You had Macklin, you had Dam. Um, who else would you have had in there? You'd have someone like Gill in there. You'd have Sergio Martinez. If I that could have been made, I imagine. Um, who else would you have had? You'd have Highland in there. But just a load of names that no one cares about, right? They're, they're not. It's not like it was before. Where you had guys like John Mugabe, Kalambe, Hagler, Leonard, McCallum, uh, Jackson, Graham. When middleweight was a serious division, Nigel Ben, there were real killers in the division. And if you could dominate all of those guys, you knew you'd be in the Hall of Fame. Golovkin didn't have that. He did not have that because the, the names weren't available. And we can understand that. But that the ones you do have on your record don't qualify for the Hall of Fame. Now, I'm trying to think back to who was popping back then. But if you go back to 2014 and look at the names that were around that he could have stepped up and fought, DeGale, Froch, Groves, all would have been credible wins and all would have cemented an argument for the Hall of Fame. Uh, Zerdo, Ramirez was around. That would have cemented his name. He could have had a big fight against his Chavez Jr., and this is like when Chavez G still had a name and, you know, hadn't disappeared down the weed smoking and CBD rabbit hole. So he could have gone up. And if he dared to be great, he could have gone to 175. And at 175, he would have found guys like Kovalev waiting for him. He would have found guys like Thomas Williams Jr. when he was halfway decent. No one say these are amazing names. But you would have got credit for going up in weight for middleweight to light heavy. And you could have done a lot of damage. You imagine a CV that's got names like Jean Pascal, Lucien Butte, 
in 2014. Um, who else do you want to whack in there? Oh, I don't even know, man. Like a Chad Dawson. Just these names that a middleweight is laying to waste. And I believe Golovkin could have laid these guys to waste. He chose not to. If he really wanted to be in the Hall of Fame, he'd have fought at 168 and 175 like Canelo's done. This is everything Golovkin could do and he could do it now. He could move up to 168 and start fighting these guys because as he gets old and slows down, it, it, it gives him an advantage as he goes up. He, he remains competitive. So to all the Golovkin fans, why doesn't he move up? And I don't want to hear the response of he doesn't need to. Here's why he needs to. Look at the rankings right now. He's in the same bracket as guys like, as we said earlier, Murata, Michael Zarafa, Chris Eubank Jr., Liam Williams. Apart from Jamal Charlo, there's nothing else in the middleweight division for him. So what does he do? Does he go down to 154? There's a lot of action there for him. Or does he go up to 168 where there's a lot of action for him? But if he wants to stay at middleweight and keep conning his own fans, his ardent supporters, that this is somehow a serious division for him to operate in, may God be with him. Yeah, 100%. But here's the kicker. Don't talk about this guy being a Hall of Famer. Don't talk about him being an all-time great. And don't mention his name in relation to people like Tony, Roy Jones Jr., Hopkins. Uh, I don't even know, Monzon, if we want to go further back. Even Mike McCallum, don't mention Golovkin in the same names because he never tested himself at the level they did. He's at a Bomber Graham level as far as I'm concerned. In terms of people he faced... He's at a Bomber Graham level. But if we zero in on the fight, I was happy for Golovkin because as a 40-year-old, and I know what it's like when your body gets old, the fact that he's in that kind of shape and able to deliver, yes, even if he's taking the nuts, berries, and juices, my God, he still has to train. He really has to train. Like You, you have to love boxing to be doing it at his age. You have to love everything about it. You have to love getting up in the morning. You have to love being in camp with people. You have to love the sparring. You have to love the pain. And he does. He really does. And it's impressive. That's impressive. I'll never knock Triple G for that. The fact that he's still able to do this at this age is insane. Especially after the career he's had. You almost worry that he's a couple of hard shots away from not being able to speak properly. Such is the punishment he's taken. You know, I saw him in that Murata fight and the hair was thinning. You like, and he looked like an old man in there. But he could still dig. And he could still throw those shots over the top of the guard that hit your forehead. Why no one else does that's beyond me. But you're watching Golovkin and there are things that you like about him. I, I like Golovkin being more relaxed. I like Golovkin being a combination puncher, flowing into combinations instead of trying to detonate every time. All that stuff I really, really enjoyed. But it's against Murata. Liam Williams would have crushed that guy. Demetrius Andre would have crushed that guy. So Golovkin should, just to maintain power, he should crush that guy. You know, it was interesting reading about the mental anguish Murata had been through prior to this fight. And I found it interesting because 
You have professional boxers wondering if they're good enough. An Olympian, a guy who's been at the top, a guy who's held titles. And people are asking that question. Is, I mean, am I good enough? With the sports psychologist having to work that out. I find that really interesting. Because I don't think it's a sign of weakness. It just shows that the two people you meet in the ring can come from completely different journeys. But what torment you go through knowing that you're going to fight Golovkin and you've known this for about two years that you're going to fight Triple G and all you're thinking about is what he's done to everybody else and thinking, do I have the resilience to cope with that? And I think we found on the night, he didn't. Murata gave up mentally long before his body gave up. And that's a sin. I always say the most, the, the most acceptable, maybe the only acceptable mode of defeat in that ring is your body gives up on you. In the way that Wilder showed, Wilder showed, nah, I'm always going to keep getting back up. No matter what you do, my desire is to get back up. And that mindset you can't manufacture. So credit to Murata for getting as far as he did if he's always had these demons circling over him. So massive respect for that. But I just want Golovkin fans to know, please don't at me about this. I don't dislike Golovkin. I just don't think he's a Hall of Famer. I don't think he comes anywhere near being a Hall of Famer. He'll be a guy that's just on the ballot for years, but you can't justify ticking. You know, in terms of him fighting Canelo next, I give him a chance because I don't think Canelo's Superman. So I give him a chance, but I also believe that Canelo could do a lot of damage. You know, a lot of people are saying, ah, you know, Canelo was lucky to get drawn the first fight. Golovkin won that. It was a robbery. Nah, look, the result's the result. If you apply that test, cool. But you're going to have to go all the way back through history and overturn all the other decisions that didn't go the way that you wanted them to go. And at that point there, you end up in an absolute mess in terms of reputations and legacy. So you've got to accept the, the results as they stand. You just have to. Just like Jack Cattrall has to, you as boxing fans have to. Yeah. Two fights, a draw and a loss to Canelo. More or less fair in my eyes. But third fight, what can Golovkin do differently? He ain't going to be faster. He ain't going to be stronger. He's hanging on to what he currently has, while Canelo's still got time to mature and harden up. And the fight's not going to be at 160. That's the problem everyone has here. It'll be at 168. And if Golovkin goes up to 168 for Canelo, here's the question. Why didn't you go up to 168 for everybody else? That's a black mark against his record as far as I'm concerned. And I'm just saying this as someone who looks at the sport from that perspective of, you know, legacy and impact. You know, my preference is to watch Golovkin. I'll always watch Golovkin. But in terms of him, like I said, being at the top of that, that all-time tree, nowhere near. But in terms of the weekend, I think the biggest statement, if we're going to measure a statement, the biggest statement had to have been Sebastian Fundora. Now, a six-foot-six light middleweight. Let's just start there. Like, you know, back in the day, people talked about Tommy Hearns was massive at the weight. Even at 154 pounds, Tommy Holmes is still massive. And we're now talking about a guy that's probably at least three inches, if not four inches taller. At 154. And the obvious question is, how the hell do you make the weight? How do you make... Uh, I, I, uh, there's probably a question I don't want the answer to. But 
it introduces that freak factor to, to the division where you're like, wow, what does this guy do? And here's the kicker. Where you expect him to be really long and one-twos and just working at range, and because of his height, he should be fragile to the body. It turns out he's actually not fragile to the body. And much like Riddick Bowe, actually, he's really comfortable on the inside, not just from a technical perspective, but from a timing perspective too. What was impressive in that fight was his ability to creatively create... Oh, sorry, why did I even say that? His, his gift in that fight was actually being creative in how he set his combinations up. And that shows that's a guy that's done a lot of work on the inside to the point where he'd almost lose his magic if he went to boxing normally. And this is what normally happens in boxing, right? Someone figures out how to do something which is generally against boxing logic and orthodoxy. So the guy's like, I'm six foot six. And... I want to be mid to short range and let my shots go. And everyone's telling him, you've got to be boxing long. You've got to box long. You've got to use your jab. Stay, stay out of harm's way. But they don't realize he probably needs that fear of being in harm's way to let his best shots go. If you start suddenly having him as a range boxer, he might be, I don't know, 70% of the fighter that he currently is. A lot of trainers think they know the answer, but they don't really know the question. So I tend to ignore people who write stuff like that. The fact is, this is the style he's chosen. And this is the style that he's worked at perfecting, it would seem. And yes, there's a risk, that, there's a risk with that, that you'll get put down as he was by, by Lubin. And, you know, let's give Lubin credit, number one, for having a heart of a lion. And number two, for knowing when he had Fandora weekend, really sticking it to him. The shots he was hitting him with, those were elite-level shots. And had he been fighting someone closer to his own size, maybe he'd have got the stoppage. But Fandora, this was the most impressive part about this. You could see in his head, he calculated. He said, if I can take this knee, get my breath back, get my senses back, and I kill his momentum and his confidence, let me do that, and then let's start the fight again. And that's what he did, and he got the stoppage. What's clear, like, I don't know if anyone saw Lubin's face afterwards. I think he had a broken nose and a separated shoulder for his troubles. But luckily his corner pulled him out because he was getting broken up in there. Like literally liquefied in that ring. And I guess like this was a question, right? The debate was, what's the best way to bring someone along? And it was like, do you do what Lubin does? Who's been in hard from the start? Or is it like Fandora where you manage their career all the way to a certain point? I don't think we know the answer yet because like I said... <laughs> When you've got someone who's essentially a freak at six foot six, it's hard to apply traditional logic and common sense to them. You can't do it. All you can do with Fandora is say, stick him on every undercard and we'll watch it. And we'll, we'll, in fact, we're paying because he gives entertainment. And I think a lot of boxers can learn from that. You give entertainment, you'll always work. And I think the kid's got a great future. 154 is absolutely bumping. Where 160 is a wasteland, 154 has a lot of interesting fights. He could fight Tony Harrison, who, who won on Saturday. Um, no, I, I can't even remember who he fought now. But you know, Harrison was absolutely... In the build-up, he was class, and in the fight, he looked really, really good. You know? And he's always been good with those fundamentals. Is he from... I don't think he's, he's either from like Michigan or Ohio or, or Illinois. And... 
the thing about those guys is they're all fundamentally sound. I don't think they're technically perfect, but they're so fundamentally sound. Boxing just seems to be a thing there. Like in the Midwest, they just get boxing. They really get it. And he's one of the, the fine examples of that. And you know, I'd like to see him against Fandora. Let, let Fandora jump in with someone that's wily and tough like Tony Harrison. Because if you, if you notice, first part of the fight, Lubin's jabbing and the jab's working. Because Lubin's got that speed and that timing over him, right? And then Lubin stopped doing that once he got the confidence that he could land any shot from anywhere. And that's where Fandora started to work him over. And it's a lesson that stick to the fundamentals. Everything off the jab, it makes perfect sense. Now, it doesn't have to be that classic East End, you know, bolt upright jab that no one really uses in practical circumstances because it doesn't work. But whatever your jab is, you should perfect it. You should understand how to apply it in every situation. And you should stick with it for the duration of the fight. And I think that's probably where Lubin invited more damage upon himself by not doing that. But... So, in closing, I just want to say salute to Erickson Lubin for having the heart of a lion. I know that was a rough fight for him, but he's got the kind of style and skill set where you'd want to see him in fights at 154. You know, there are fights for him out there. Um, he could fight the loser of Charlo Castano. All of these fights can happen for him. And hopefully all of those guys start fighting each other. I'd quite like to see Jared Hurd jumping with Fandora. You know, he's a big guy with a high work rate too. 154 might just be the second most exciting division. Well, it might be the most exciting division, actually, because 147 is kind of getting a bit sticky, like the heavyweight division, because the belts are tied up. And no one really wants to fight each other because they're waiting for their shot. But 154, they all seem to be fighting each other in position for the winner of the unification bout. So I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying that at 154. And it makes the problems at 160 even more stark because you're now saying, well, okay. There's action there. There's action at all these other weight classes. And meanwhile, in middleweight, Golovkin's fighting, I don't even know, man, like Papier Mache Murata, man. It's not, not a great look. But, you know, we, we probably said too much about Triple G, so I want to just move on to Ryan Garcia now, who fought a delivery driver. And I don't know what to make of it. No. Here's Ryan Garcia's issue. When you're young, you can get away with speed and reflexes and, and actually just being ignorant enough that it appears like you're being brave and courageous and innovative. But you're just being ignorant in terms of what you need to succeed. And that's him in a nutshell. The use of the jab was sporadic. He wasn't consistent with it. He was still trying to leap in with those hooks. And you can do that against a delivery driver. But you're not going to be able to do that against Tank. You're not going to be able to do that against Haney. You're not going to be able to do that against the top guys in the division. And there's an argument saying, yes, he's feeling his way back. He's with Joe Goosen now. It's all going to be a bit different. Yeah, great. But if you have to learn at 20-something how to throw a jab and why you throw a jab in the situation in which a jab is the best thing to do, what have you been doing for the previous few years? There are a lot of red flags swirling around Ryan Garcia that he'll need to dispel pretty quickly before his opponents become emboldened by the perceived fragility. I'm not talking mental here, I'm just talking technical. Yeah, yeah you can leap in with hooks and that all looks good and it's impressive. But as you start to slow down, you're not going to get away with that. 
you're going to have to rely on more fundamental skills. And that's where Haney has the advantage over him, in that Haney's just got those fundamentals locked in. There are no bells and whistles with Devin Haney, but he understands that bells and whistles don't win you championships. Fundamentals do. And that's what Ryan Garcia's got to understand because he's going to lose if he doesn't change. And then what will happen is he will lose and he'll start talking about, I need to prove my fundamentals. I need to get back on my jab. I need to do all these right things that I haven't been doing before. And he'll start saying nonsense like, I need to live the lifestyle of an elite fighter. Do you know, in an era where we talk about guys being all-time greats and Hall of Famers, I was on Twitter earlier and it just, just reminded me of how fickle boxing fans are. No one talks about Corey Spinks. No one talks about Corey Spinks being good. Like, you don't see this on Twitter a lot. No one says, yeah, you know what? What would Corey have done against Floyd or something? You know, something like that. Maybe they fought each other. Man, I'm just saying this out of ignorance now. God, I hope they didn't. But you know, what would Corey Spinks have done against a Bradley? What would Corey Spinks have done against this person? What would Corey Spinks have done against a Pacquiao? No one puts him in that bracket. But at one point, he held three belts. He had, he had, he had three belts. And he took Jermaine Tennant to a split. Yeah, split. What, a middleweight? And no one talks about Corey Spinks. And there are loads of fighters like that that no one talks about but were good. Were Gennady Golovkin good? And no one talks about them. And this is what I mean about boxing fans being fickle. Who talks about Corey Spinks now? No, God, just conscious of time now. I'm massively running out of time to to get this mastered and out before midnight. Ah, I wanted to shout out David Pereira. A lot of you guys won't know who David Pereira is. David Pereira is ex-Fitzroy Lodge. He's an ex-pro and he used to train at Miguel's. And I, I know him more well. The Lodge thing's one part of it. But the second bit of it is that he used to train Dominic Akinladi. And so when I was coming up as a trainer, Dom would send me some videos and I'd see what David was doing. And I remember just going, I want my guys to look like this. And so one of my early influences in terms of what I do now was David Pereira. So I want to just shout out David Pereira because, you know, another name that just gets lost in the mix. Yeah, so I was bugged out when I realized David Pereira listens to this. I was like, oh, man, you're listening to me in all those years. I used to watch your videos. Because he's he, he had a good style as a boxer himself. So I can see how he passed it on to Dominic. Dominic never looked better after training with with David Pereira, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but shouts out to him. Um, I mean, just had to put that out there. In terms of anything else that's been happening, man, the ABA's happened this weekend. I'm not really going to touch on it in any great depth because I don't think it's worth dragging individual boxers through. But things I want to say, one, good to see the women's boxing is increasing in volume and in quality. So shouts out to the ladies for holding up their end of the bargain. I think on the men's side, the standard was poor. I'd rate that quarterfinal and semifinal run as a four out of ten. And why you know why this is important to you guys, because I'm telling you the pipeline is pretty dry at the moment. There aren't many guys where you're like, oh my God, out of nowhere. There's one guy, like I want to shout out Gideon Antwi. And a lot of people won't know why, but I remember watching Gideon Antwi. This has got to be 2015 in the novices. And he boxed at 91 kilos and he was like, he was just swinging for the fences. And he put a lot of people down, like, Jesus, if he hit you, you went down. And he was just an entertaining guy. And he got to the finals and all of that sort of good stuff. And like, you know, Gid's lovely man, by the way, really, really nice man. 
And so over the years, he's worked himself up to a super heavyweight now. And he's been under the radar. <clears throat> because in London, you've got to remember, there have been guys like George Fox, um, Courtney Gallet, Courtney Bennett, Jamie Shakiva, all kind of overshadowed him. But he's always stayed in that kind of pack, just quietly in the peloton, laying low. And now you're seeing him do his thing. So he's through to the finals on the 23rd. And he's fighting the kid from Hillcrest. Uh, forget his name. But he's one of the... Uh, God, he's crazy with the head. Now, which is going to be interesting because, you know, Gideon's a smaller super heavyweight who likes to move his head a lot. So I have a feeling there's going to be a few head clashes there. And the referees have to be super strict on this because these guys can't be getting cuts. Because I yeah, forget the Hillcrest kid's name. It's Harvey Dykes. That's his name. And he's reckless with the head. I'm not saying he's dirty, but his corner, it's his corner's job to make sure he doesn't get this reputation because no one will work with him if you're going to risk cuts jumping in the ring with him. And it's not like, oh, we're scared of him because he's an amazing boxer. He's just too wild. And sometimes you've got you've to have a bit of empathy to say, oh, let me not do anything that's reckless with my head. But I want you to shout out Gids because I like seeing people who just persevere. And eventually they get their time in the light. And I think right now he's having that moment. And he's one of those people like Jamie Shakiva that... <laughs> If you're in trouble and you see those two men beside you, arms folded, chests out, you know you're safe. So I wanted to just shout him out. Um, and then also to Damien Lithgow, hey, hey, your guy is it Leo Atanga, the kid who won the 81 in the juniors. I think he'd have been competitive in this ABA lineup. He might have even got to the final. And that shouldn't be the case. Like There should be a clear gap between junior and senior there should be clear water between the two of them yet i was watching that going no nah, no nah, i think the kid would have been competitive here so it's a poor standard now you've got a lot of people who are essentially trying to be career amateurs right they have no intention of turning pro they just want to win the abas and that's cool but that means that there isn't a burning hunger you're just there to be technically competent and get through and that that was the theme of the men's section for the women's section Ladies are going for, they're just going for everything. And that was good to see as well. Um, I know there were a few unfortunate losses, so I might not look as slick as I wanted to. So from the women's side, now, I just want to shout out Steve Whitwell at St. Ives. Lovely man, by the way. Proper boxing guy. I know he gets frustrated with the sport sometimes, but he's a thoroughly good guy. Now, the reason I say that is if you look at women's boxing, there are a number of people who've kind of led the light in terms of delivering quality female boxers. I put him in that same bracket as a Sam Mullins, who's also sort of banged the drum for that. Because if you look at it, Steve Whitwell's got his two daughters, so I think it's Harley Whitwell and Shona Whitwell, who are great fighters. And when they cross over into the pro game, they'll they'll take it to another level. And then he's also got Millie Simons as well. So he's he's active. Do you know what I mean? He's really putting through some quality. Um, you know, you got Sarah Dunn at Metro. You got a lot of quality there. Uh, you had Marcy Graham doing her thing, and you know there was a time when you were struggling to find the names, and you're like, I don't know who I'm looking forward to in the tournament. But now you do. You go in there with a list, and like uh, the ladies are definitely doing their thing. So congratulations to them. I think in about four or five years, you know, you're going to get an all female card, and as boxing fans, you're going to enjoy every fight on there. And that's what I'm looking forward to. That all female card. That doesn't feel like a gimmick. That feels like it's got legit talent behind it. I'm looking forward to that. In terms of the men's side, it's poor. And the, re the root cause of it, poor coaching. 
when you've got people who are now joining gyms and training people so they can be on Instagram and really training amateurs is just a, a stepping stone for them to get into the pros because everyone just wants to get their people onto Sky. So it's like, I'm going to train you for 10 fights, you're going to do the ABAs, get a GB assessment, and we're going to put you straight onto Sky. Not how you learn your craft. Yes, boxing's a sport to an extent, but it's also a craft. You have to know what you're doing. You know, when you watch football and everyone just watches someone like, uh, who's a plodding sort of player? Danny Drinkwater. You watch Danny Drinkwater and you're like, listen, mate, I could do your job for your money. Right? You do with Danny Drinkwater. Until you play with a guy like Danny Drinkwater and you realize you can't. When it comes to this football thing, he's a craftsman. He's not just an athlete. He's a craftsman. He knows where to be. He knows how to receive the ball. Like Phil Foden, they know how to receive the ball. You know, how much they need to turn, how they shield it all in one move. And there, there aren't many people in amateur gyms right now who are equipping their guys to be fundamentally sound, technically good, and hard, physically and mentally. The coaching in the amateur system is deteriorating every year because people just want to be on Instagram going, look at this pad routine I'm doing. And then you come to the ABAs and you made all of that noise about what you're going to do in the ABAs and what happens? You lose. You lose to someone who just threw one-twos for the whole fight. And you can't understand that because your brain can't process what boxing really is because you showed up yesterday. And this was just meant to be a stepping stone. The one thing I will say is the future of British boxing, or English boxing, I should say, is north of Nottingham. What those clubs in Lancashire, Yorkshire, Northumberland, the Northeast, and North, whatever you want to call it, there, that hinterland there, the jungle, I don't know, whatever you want to call what's happening up north, that's where the future of boxing is. Because those guys have never deviated from the script. Be super fit, be strong, have your basics down pat, and you can just get through tournaments. There's an art to getting through a tournament that you don't learn on Instagram and you don't learn on YouTube. You learn by being around people who have done it before and done it successfully. Your 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 Sid Khans, your Mickey Delaney's, your Lenny Haglins, your Tox Owos, all these sorts of guys who have got people over the line historically. And they know when you need to start prepping, you know when you need to start peaking, you know when you've got to start tapering down. They know all of this stuff. But these younger guys, the Instagram coaches that you see all up in the media, they don't know anything about this. They just don't. And that's why your standard is a 4 out of 10 this year. And I think it will be even worse next year. Because there's not much to look forward to, from definitely from a London perspective and a South perspective. Apart from when I want to shout out the guys in Bournemouth, they seem to be doing something special there. Because the South Coast seems to be booming from a boxing perspective. So just a massive shout out to those guys. And I think that's it for me. Now I've got to try and edit this all down and get it up before midnight. So this is like Challenge Anakin now. So I'm going to bid you guys goodbye and have a great week until the next time.